John was certainly the source of the information in this biography. In fact, I did a little bit of reading around. There are one or two scholars that think it wasn't John that wrote it. It was one of his disciples, based on what John told him. The other thing is, AD 90, is that really the date? Well, actually, if you read around, more and more people seem to think it was done earlier than AD 90, perhaps AD 50. So the two things that I draw from this is, one, John was certainly an eyewitness, and the account is based on what he saw and heard, whether he physically wrote it or not. And he was definitely alive when it was written. So therefore, we've got a high level of confidence that what we're going to look at is probably a really, really accurate record of John's experience with Jesus. But before we get into the story, let's learn a little bit about John. John was a fisherman. His dad's name was Zebedee, and his brother was James. And they had a little fishing business along with some friends. Another family, also headed by a John, who had two sons, one called Simon and another called Andrew. And the four lads had started to get in with a local preacher guy called John the Baptist. He was a bit of a hippie-type guy out in the desert. And he, he was starting to tell people, you need to get ready because a special guy is coming. Someone special is coming from God. You need to get ready for this and prepare yourselves. And when Jesus turned up on the scene, he started to point at Jesus and say, this is the person I'm talking about. So it's logical that James and John and Andrew and Simon started to move across and listen to what Jesus was doing and started to get involved with Jesus. So that's a bit about the context before we get to the story we're going to hear in a minute. The other thing I'd like to do is to sort of just say, this book wasn't written without an agenda. John, when he wrote this book, had a very, very clear set of objectives. And he tells us what they are at the end. And whenever you look at something like this, you need to ask this question. What was this person thinking about? What did they want to uh, communicate to us? So let's just have a look at that as we start. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, the first thing we learn from this is this is not an exhaustive biography. He has been very selective about what he's chosen to tell us. And he's chosen specific things because he calls them signs. If you look at the other accounts of Jesus' life, they include a lot more events than John does. So they're much more extensive, but John has been very, very selective. Why has he been selective? Well, he goes on to tell us. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wants to convince you Jesus is the Son of God. That's why he's written it. That's why he selected these signs, because they're the things that convinced him, and he hopes they will convince you as well that Jesus is the Son of God. This is not an objective view of who Jesus was. This is very partisan. So you need to read it in that context, because he specifically selected those things to point you in a particular direction. He's really saying, this is what convinced me, and I'm going to share it with you. Let's watch another video. That was a video of a, a wedding disaster, an absolute catastrophe. 
I'd love to know what happened to the best man afterwards. <laughs> I have visions of four bridesmaids carrying and kicking and screaming off the premises. We're going to have another, hear about another wedding catastrophe, and Lisa has very kindly agreed to uh, read it to us. John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thanks, Lisa. So we pick up the story um, with Jesus and his family. They've been invited to a wedding at a place called Cana, roughly eight miles to the north of where they lived. Now, this would have been a big event. Five to seven days, they reckon these weddings lasted. I don't know if many of you have got married recently or you've been involved in organizing a wedding. The most stressful part is who you're going to invite. All right? There is always more people than space and money can fit into the venue. It's not quite the case for weddings in first century Palestine. Most people were invited. Relatives, friends. And if you invited Jesus, his new followers turned up with him as well. One of the times Sue, my wife, was in India. She was staying in, the, in a guest house. And one of the staff working in the guest house was getting married. Sue, who happened to be a guest in the guest house, got chatting to her one day and was invited to the wedding. Now, that is a very loose guest list. There were thousands at this wedding. It was a huge, huge event. This is a pretty poor picture of it. I've deliberately picked one which doesn't involve brides and grooms and people like that. But you get a feel for a large expanse, lots of plastic chairs and people sitting around. I'm sure this is what this was like over several days. The wedding will have been organized by the groom's family or the groom. He will have got betrothed or engaged and then the family would have sat down and sorted out how much the diary was, how big the wedding was, how long it would last, who was going to be invited, and all of those items. And it could take quite some time for the family to save up, normally 12 months, possibly longer, before it was ready. And fulfilling this and doing it in the right way was a part of honor. It said something about the bride that you put on a lavish ceremony, that you paid a big dowry. 
So when you ran out of wine, it was a big deal. It said something about what you thought about the bride's family that you couldn't be bothered to stump up the money you promised. It probably says something about you too. And bear in mind, this is a close-knit community. People didn't travel for miles. This would have been remembered for years and years and years. You can't trust this family because they don't live up to what they do. And what happens if there's another son or daughter in either of those families? It might become harder to marry them off. But when it goes wrong, mums come to the rescue, don't they? They have this intuition that they spot that something's wrong. And that was the case with Jesus' mum. She heard something was going wrong, so she said to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, Jesus' response is somewhat surprising. He says, woman... Now, that sounds a little rude. In practice, it was more of a formal reference to his mum, more like ma'am. All right? There's not a good translation for that, but it wasn't an insult. And then he said exactly what I would have said. What does this have to do with me? Where am I going to find wine at this late stage? And I'm not rich, I've got no money. You can't sort of just you know, go down to the supermarket and buy a few extra bottles. He then says something really weird. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to do something, because he does something, doesn't he, and sorts the wedding out, because we've heard it in the story. In fact, if you've read other bits of John's Gospel, when um, John records that, Jesus means something very specific. He's referring to his death and his resurrection. Now, how that fits with a wedding and wine, we'll find out in a minute. But clearly what Jesus is saying is, this isn't just, sorting, this isn't just going to be sorting out a catering mishap. All right? This is more than that. This signifies something very, very important. If there's a problem at a party, I've never come across anybody that goes straight to the Christians to ask them, for additional wine and booze. We're the ones that normally bring the schlur, aren't we? (laughs) But they went to Jesus, and he had compassion, and he did something about it, because he knew the consequences for the family, despite his reservations about whether it was the right time to do something or not. This first miracle was quite private. Only a few people will have known it happened. But it was quite significant to those who benefited. There are six stone water jars, each carrying, say, 100 litres. They didn't have a tap nearby. They will have gone to the well and carried that. So we're talking probably an hour, hour and a half, perhaps two hours of work for the servants to go and fill these six stone water jars. We then end up with, what, 600 litres of wine? 600 litres of the very best wine. I estimate, well, that's 800 bottles. 800 bottles of wine in today's language. Not just okay wine, but the best wine. In the story, we hear that the master of the banquet exclaims, why have you bought this good stuff out now? Normally people wait till everyone's had a few drinks and they're a little bit tipsy and then you bring out the cheap stuff. 
But no, you've brought out this good stuff later on. The bride and groom are delighted. It's all saved. Their marriage is secure. Everyone thinks they've done a brilliant job. Only Jesus and a few of his disciples and the servants knew what had happened. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing trick. Fantastic. But what's such a big deal? We found it earlier on, didn't we, that John recorded this because this was really, really significant. So why was it so significant? Apart from the fact that he helped out a marriage couple, saved their marriage. To understand that, we need to do a little bit of a teaching on Jewish culture. These stone water jars. Uh, these pictures, by the way, are about 300 years after Jesus. I couldn't find any that I found that were reliably um, stone water jars. But they'll have looked something like this, I suspect. They were used for what was called ceremonial washing. If you were a Jew, you washed your hands before your meal. Clearly a good reason for hygiene, but for them it meant something more. It symbolized them washing away the sin, washing away the evil, the wrong things in their lives before God, before they sat down and had their meal. And even today, at certain Jewish festivals, people will wash their hands to symbolize the same thing. The other thing to be aware of is if you were a Jew, you had a really strong sense of your history and your relationship with your God. It would have been seared into your memory that 600 years ago, your nation was conquered by the Babylonians and you were dragged into exile. And ever since, you've lived under the power and the thumb of another nation. Some were nicer than others, but it wasn't an existence that you enjoyed. You could only worship your God in a way that they allowed. They had rules that you didn't approve of. They took taxes from you. First it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, then it was the Greeks, and finally the Romans. You longed for a time when you were free. You look back a thousand years to the time of King David and King Solomon when you were the major nation, when God blessed you, when you could worship him, when you could live according to his ways. But all you'd known was oppression and living under the thumb of someone else. You knew why it had happened. It had happened because you turned away from that God that had blessed you. You'd done your own thing. You'd lived your own way. You'd started dabbling with other gods. And that's why God had allowed this to happen to you. And you were suffering as a consequence. But that wasn't all. Not only did you have this understanding of who you are and why you were in that mess, you had a hope. Throughout your scriptures, were promises that God would intervene in a really powerful way and he would transform your circumstances. And no longer would you live under oppression. No longer would you be subjugated. But you would be able to live with your God as he intended you to. As you look back through history at the time of David and Solomon, those days would come again. That's what you longed for. 
That's what you hoped for. God would restore you. So when you hear John the Baptist say someone special is coming, that's what's in your mind. That's what you want. That's what you long for. So why don't we have a look at one of those redemption promises? Why don't we have a look at what is said? Now, 700 years beforehand, a guy called Isaiah lived. And he said this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. This will have been familiar to John. They will have prayed for this. They will have longed for this day. I'm sure you've all spotted the reference to wine. It's the obvious link, isn't it? But for them, when this happens, there's going to be a feast, a celebration, with the best wine, with abundant food. And I guess abundant wine was the picture we've got here. But Isaiah doesn't just say that, does he? He says something more. He goes on to say that he'll destroy the shroud that involves envelops the peoples. They will break free from the oppression and from their punishment. They will swallow up death forever. He'll wipe away their tears and wipe away their shame. The consequence of their evil will be dealt with. It's not insignificant that the wine was in these water jars used for ceremonial washing to demonstrate that they were clean. This wine and the water jars. I think it's really hard, and I really struggled with this, is to just get our heads around what this meant to John and the other disciples. Because for us, we've never lived in the environment they talk about. We've never suffered under the oppression of others. We can worship freely. The rule of law looks after us. We're free. But for them, this was a massive thing. This was their hope. This is what they longed for. The best example I could come up with was the end of the Second World War. Our nation lived under threat of death. We couldn't get the things that we wanted. We feared for our lives. We've lost loved ones. The rule of law was dictatorial. You do what you're told. People longed for the day when the war would be over. They longed for the day when they would be free. They would be able to buy things in the shops. And when that day came, they went on the streets, didn't they? They climbed on lorries. The police had to corral people. You'd have broken out the champagne. They had street parties. It was an amazing day of celebration, of relief. No more people would die. 
Your family would be coming home. It was that same expression of joy and celebration that they look forward to that is in Isaiah's picture. I know it's imperfect, but it was the best example I could come up with to just help us get our heads round what was going on in John's mind. I don't know if you spotted something else in Isaiah's prophecy. You see, I've been talking about the Jewish nation up to this point, but that's not actually what Isaiah says. He says something slightly differently. Let's have a look. This promise is for all peoples. All nations. And the bit I love, for all faces. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, or what ethnicity you are, or what your background is. This promise is for you too. This freedom from shame. This life. When John saw this, he connected the dots. He'd heard what John the Baptist had predicted about this man Jesus, and suddenly it all came together. And he said, This man is the Messiah. This is the promised one. This is the person who's going to change our situation, change our country, and bring his kingdom. John saw it as a sign that Isaiah's prediction had come true. Let's just go back to... Remember Jesus made that comment at the beginning, didn't he? My hour has not yet come. I think it starts to make a bit of sense now. You see, what this predicted was what would happen following Jesus' death and resurrection. His kingdom would come. His people would be removed from oppression. They would live under the authority of their God. All peoples would. It was a little premature. It was three years early. So his hour was coming, but had not yet come although this symbolized that it was coming and would happen. Having said that for John, God's Messiah was here and he was starting to move in a powerful way. 1,000 years ago, Jesus transformed a wedding. He took it from imminent disaster to the best party ever. So if Jesus can do this for a party, what could he do for a whole life? Or if I put it differently, what could he do for your life? Now we're going to finish with a song. This song is an expression of what it's like to live under God's authority. It's the song that John and the Jewish nation longed to sing 
They longed to know God's reign in their lives. They longed to know God was in charge, to know his blessing, to know his favor, to live with him. 